I'd like you to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 26. The subject we've been ministering on is honoring God, and we've talked about a number of different things in this teaching. We talked about how that we honor God by striving for completeness in our life, and we used an analogy in which Jesus healed a man that was blind, and after he prayed for him, he asked him what he saw, and he said, I see men as trees. And Jesus went on to pray for him a second time until he saw men as men. And we spoke on that, used that as a an example of how that the concern of Jesus is that a complete healing and work is done in our life. To have that done, we said, secondly, we needed to avoid the leaven of hypocrisy. The warning that Jesus gave about the Pharisees and the uh, leaven of hypocrisy and how that we must strive to serve him in sincerity and truth. Sincerity by itself is important, but it's not enough to attain unto our goal as a Christian. It requires for us sincerity and truth. And then thirdly, we spoke last week about how that in order to come into our goal, we must win the battle the warfare that we're in, and it's threefold. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. We talked about the importance of overcoming the world by being lights in this in this world. Now, our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, I'd like to talk about another, the second enemy that we're to strive to overcome, and that's over in Matthew chapter 26, and that is that we're to overcome the flesh. And this is a daily battle. This is a daily struggle. It's something that because of the struggle and the difficulty with overcoming the flesh, most Christians have just resigned themselves that this is not something that is possible to do, and they've given up because the battle is difficult. The battle is hard. That's why it's easier for churches to turn to teachings of entertainment and the milk of the word rather than the truths of discipleship because the truths of discipleship are just not always as palatable. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said this is where he had gone unto the garden to pray. And when he came back, he said in verse 40, he asked them to pray with him, but he found them sleeping. He came to the disciples and he said, He found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Now, if if you have spent time in prayer and you've sought to focus for an hour in prayer, you know how difficult sometimes the flesh can be in that. Your mind gets to wandering. You get tired. Sometimes it's not, you know, it's not being critical of these guys. It's It's not always an easy thing to do, but he admonished them. He said, what, can't you can't you watch and pray for one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptations. The spirit is indeed willing, but he says the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. 
And like I said earlier, because of that, most Christians have resigned themselves that because of the struggle and the difficulty and the battle that we have with the flesh, they've come up with unscriptural excuses to whereby they are not even in the battle anymore. They just resign themselves to the fact that they're going to live in the flesh and that's just the way it is until they die. But that's that would not be heeding here the warning. Jesus tells us here that we are to watch and pray that we don't enter into those temptations. He didn't say to us that there was no reason to pray. There's nothing that could be done in this life that we were going to enter into temptations, that the flesh was weak, and there's really nothing we could do about it until we get over on the other side. He's admonishing them here to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. When you talk about the flesh... Here he speaks here, and he's talking about how the flesh is weak. What exactly is meant by the flesh? Well, the term usually means the physical body. Most frequently it does. Like in 1 Corinthians 15.50, which we won't turn there, the actual Greek term here is sarx, S-A-R-X. And you can find it in many, many places. Like 1 Corinthians 15.50, it says, Flesh and blood will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the flesh in that regard is obviously talking about the physical body. But it's not always used that way. And especially in the writings of Paul, although we're reading here in Matthew, which is not the writings of Paul, but Paul uses flesh as a term to speak about the old way of life. When you get into the Old Testament and you look up how that flesh you look up the word flesh, while it's used sometimes as the body, which it is in the New Testament, the Greek, oftentimes, though, it is used in contrast, as a synonym, in contrast to other things, like, for example, in regard to God. Now, let's look at these scriptures. I think they're important to lay a foundation to understand, because, there, as I said, there are many Christians that do not understand the concept of flesh, and so, therefore, they miss a very important truth in the Word of God. Psalm 56 and verse 4. The Old Testament uses the term flesh as a synonym. And here, for example, it would be in contrast to God. Psalm 56 and verse 4 says, In God will I praise His Word, in God will I put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Now, obviously, when he says there, I will not fear what Flesh will do unto me, but I'll put my trust in God. He's talking about men. He's talking about their personalities. He's talking about their attitudes. He's talking about their anger, their threats, their intimidation. But he's talking about the men. He isn't talking about, here, I will not be afraid of a, of a man's flesh in the sense of his body. And then in another place, like Jeremiah 17:5, which we don't need to turn to, he says, Cursed is the man that what? Trust in man and makes flesh his arm. Well, he tells you thereby what it is. He's saying that when you put your trust in the strength, the intelligence, the wisdom, when you put your, your confidence in man and what they have to offer, you put yourself under a curse because you're not trusting in the Lord. Well, he isn't talking there about the human body. I mean, the body's involved, obviously. But it's something further than the human body. You're putting your trust in their wisdom or in what they have to offer you. Obviously, the body is a part of it, 
but it's something that is more than the body. If you look at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 6, here he uses another contrast when the prophet Isaiah is talking about flesh is like grass. Isaiah 40 and verse 6. If we back up verse 5, he says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The voice said, cry, and he said, well, what shall I cry? And he said, all flesh is grass. Now, our human bodies, if we're talking about flesh, we're not grass, we're human beings. If you're talking about an animal, for example, that's flesh and blood, even in that regard, they're not grass, they're animals. So he's obviously here giving us a an example, giving us a hyperbole. He said, what shall I cry? And he said, all flesh is, is grass. He's using it as an example. Think about the grass. And then you can understand what he's about to say. All the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. I mean, you look out in the spring of the year when the flowers come out and they're, they are gorgeous. But they're short-lived. I mean, they, they come out and a week later they're gone. We have some kind of a flower that's planted in the backyard it only comes up once a year. It's a perennial. or Yeah, it's a perennial. It comes up once a year. Just a couple little shoots, not very much at all. And you may see them for one week. When I'm mowing the lawn, I can see them for one week. They're out in the backyard. They're only a little bit high. But after one week, they're gone. They land, They come and they go in an extremely short period of time. And that's what he's talking about here. It's like the graph. It comes and it goes. It's short-lived. I mean, if he, he's just trying to make an analogy. If you look at a human being's life, we really can't see 75, 80 years of that person's life and, and comprehend all the things that go on in it. But with grass, we can see in one season. It grows, it turns colors, it dies, it comes back. And that's all he's trying to say. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it. Verse Verse 6. All flesh is as grass, the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. He's saying people are grass. Well, people aren't grass. It's an analogy. What he's saying is a lot of things are going to come and go. A lot of trends, a lot of ideas, a lot of things come up. I mean, I've seen that in the church over the last 30 years. Different things come up. People will follow this and follow that and try this and try that. Things come and things go. But he says the word of our God abides forever. I mean, that's why I guess I'm blessed that in, in speaking to uh, Brother Gallagher, which many of you probably don't remember, but he was a song leader at the church in Coshocton many years ago when I traveled down to southern Ohio. And I've been in contact with him. He, he emails me on a regular basis and asks different questions about the Word because what he's run into is that he'll go to a church, and they, were, they went to a Nazarene church for like 15 years, and he'll go and he'll hear something, and he'll say, that isn't what I was taught. And then he'll email me back and say, now, where, where did, what did you teach me, and where's that at? And we just go back and forth through email, and it's just a lot of fun, but in, in, in another sense, oh, it, it's just really a blessing in my heart because I want to say, you know, some seeds got planted and they didn't die. They're still there and they're bringing forth fruit. And then he told me the other day that they had 
had enough and they were splitting off and they were uh, getting involved in a new church that was starting up. And then we, and I just pray that that goes in the direction of God's will. But what I'm saying is there's a lot of things that come and go and it's like the grass, it withers and one day it's exciting and the next day it's gone and the next thing you know, it's something else that comes along. I mean, many of you remember Gary Dotson from the, from years back. I talked to Gary probably, I don't know, three or four years ago. He had gotten kicked out of his church up in Toledo only because they had a board and they voted him out and he no longer was pastor and I'm not sure where he's going now. But we had uh, breakfast together or lunch together one day and had a long talk. And he told me, he said, you know, Mike, he said, I wish, he said, I look back over the years and I wish I would have just stayed the course with what I was taught because it's right. He said, I had to learn the hard way that all these things that you bring in, he, you know, they did everything. They brought in the flags and they brought in the all the different gizmos and things that people, that, that whatever comes along that people want to follow. And he said, it's just a a fickle thing to try to get people to be enthusiastic and excited. But there's one thing that doesn't change, and that's the Word of God. He said, it's like this. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but it's the Word that's going to get us into maturity and growth and completeness. That's what he's trying to say. In Psalm 78, verse 39, the point is that, that when you talk about flesh, and I'll just read this one one more verse. When you talk about flesh, it isn't talking about our physical body only. Not that that's wrong, but it depends upon the Scripture. It depends upon the context. And when Jesus said, watch and pray, for the Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak, he wasn't just limiting that to the physical body, because some people are stronger physically than others. Is he saying there that we need to go on out, get exercise and work out, and get our muscles strengthened so that we can pray for an hour? Is that what we're supposed to do? No, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the mind. That's what he's talking about. Sure, the flesh is weak, but at the same time, we have to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, and He admonishes us to control our heart and mind because that's the that's where our strength is going to come from. Psalm 78 and verse 38 says, he's talking here about how that he had uh, destroyed the earth with a flood, and then he judged his people for other things. And we read verse 34, when he slew them, then they sought him, and he returned and inquired, and they inquired early after God. And they re remembered that God was their rock, and the high God was their redeemer, especially during the judges they were up and down. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues. Their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity, and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up his wrath, because he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and cometh not again. He remembered that they were what? That they were human beings. He remembered that they had a human nature. So when the Bible talks about the flesh, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about the flesh is being used here as humanity or as the old way of life. 
Colossians chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10, this scripture and a few others is sometimes interpreted as how that we have two natures from within. I'm sure that you've heard, or at least if from this church or from others, you've heard people refer to how that we have two natures. In Romans 7, Paul's describing that battle and struggle with the old man. And so it's brought out how that we have within us two natures, one sinful, one righteous. The righteous nature, if we yield to it, will lead us unto completeness and, and victory. But that old nature from within is just like a, a a chain on our leg that pulls us back. And until we get rid of that chain, we're never going to be able to really accomplish anything in our spiritual life. And they'll use a scripture like this. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9 says, Lie not one to another, seeing that you put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after him, after the image of him that created him. So they talk about how that you got an old man in you and you got a new man in you. Now Paul's talking here as a figure of speech, not literally. But they want to take something like that literally by saying that we have two natures. Well, what is human nature? What is human nature? Here's the definition of human nature. Human nature is the character of a human being. It's the, it is the typical character that all human beings share. The psychological, social qualities that characterize humankind. What we say, what we think, how we act, we dress, we eat, our habits. It's humanity. The personality, the ego, the man himself. Human nature is you. And so if we follow their theory, then there's two us's in there. I guess we could say there's an old Mike Green and there's a new Mike Green inside of me. Interesting question is, what happens when I die? What happens to the old Mike Green? Does he go to hell? Does the new Mike Green go to heaven? I can't take the old Mike Green bring him up to heaven. I mean, am I a spiritual schizophrenic? Am I, am I spiritually two people? There was only one human being that had two natures. That was Jesus Christ. He had full God nature and full human nature. He's the only begotten. He's the unique, one of a kind. That's what the begotten means. We don't have two natures. What we have from within is not two natures, but what we have is the flesh, the old habits, the old attitudes, the old ways, that before we got born again, we got so used to letting them rule and reign and develop over years in our life. I mean, if you became a Christian and you were 60 years old when you became a Christian, you're going to probably struggle with the flesh more than some youngster that becomes a Christian and doesn't have all that old habits and attitudes and backgrounds in the back that they have to cope with and deal with. The flesh is a figure used by the Apostle Paul as a figure of speech to refer to the old ways of life versus the new ways of life. The habits, the attitude, the speech, the ethics, the morals, the personality. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. The flesh is you and those habits and attitudes and things that you picked up along the way. It doesn't necessarily have to be something of the past, but if you hang around with the world, you're going to pick up a worldly attitude. 
you're going to pick up a worldly spirit. It's just going to, to, going to feed that. We're in a warfare. The devil is going to appeal to that. None of us, human nature does not like to be controlled. People don't like to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. I mean, if we, if we enjoyed being controlled by the Holy Spirit, we would be yielding to Him more than we are. But do you like it when, for example, your rights have been violated and you want to rise up and you want to vindicate yourself and you want to justify yourself and you want to demand your rights? You want to do that because in this world, if you don't do that, you're looked upon as a coward. You're looked upon as uh, weak, intimidating. People will say to you, you better, take, you better rise up and use your rights. If you don't, you're going to get taken advantage of if you listen to the world, you're going, to want, you're going to want to rise up. You're going to say, I've got this right, and I'm going to use this right. But just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that you should always use it. I'll give you a, a case in point. Here about uh, two weeks ago, I was at work, and it, there was Sunday work that had to be done. And so I had two people that had lined up, and they were going to do the work. But as as things went on, it, it appeared to be there was a whole lot more that needed to be done, so I needed a third person. Well, I had a young man come up to me, and he said to me, if, if you need help on Sunday, I'm available. Here's my phone number. And I said, okay. So when it came to Saturday evening, I whipped that piece of paper out of my pocket, gave him a call. He said, I'll be in. And he went in, and he worked. But the problem is he had less seniority than somebody that was that should have been called. You know, you got to follow the pecking order with the union. So because I didn't follow the pecking order, one man didn't get a phone call, and as a result, he came now and filed a grievance and said, I want eight hours double-time pay. Now, the question is, you know, that the point is, yes, that is his right. That is his right. But he didn't work. He didn't earn it. And the question of whether or not he would have come in, I asked him point blank. I said, if I would have called you, would you have come in? And he said, well, it's double time. They didn't say yes or no. He just said, it's double time. And that's all that he said. And, and you want to just say, you know, I had the right many times to discipline you for bumping the guardrail. I had the right many times for you putting the wrong mold in. I could have corrected you and disciplined you for that. I mean, we could have sat down and made a list. I could have disciplined him. If you want to play that game for every little thing they do wrong, one minute too late in the lunchroom, write him up. I mean, all you do, though, is you'd be constantly going back and forth at writing people up and friction and division all the time. Management, from our side, I try to give people a little bit of leeway, but I expect a little bit of leeway when I make a mistake. I made a mistake but I expect a little bit of leeway in return. And it was like, no way am I going to give you any leeway. We're talking about money here. So the motive is what? What's the motive? Greed. Money. I mean, that's the bottom line. And that's just the way the world is. The world pursues after money. Their heart is on money. That's what the Scriptures are talking about when He warns us about striving not to be rich in this world. Because that's the way the world is. And so with that mentality, that's the kind of mentality that is in the world. And the flesh can say, I've got the right. Yes, God had, God had the right, though, to judge you 
and to snuff you off this earth a long time ago. But he didn't take that, right? He showed what? Mercy, patience, love, forgiveness. Come on, are you with me? And the Holy Spirit is right there many times that while you may want to use your rights, the Holy Spirit is right there to say, I want you to be patient. I want you to be forgiving. I want you to be kind. I want you to, and then move in some direction that is other than justice, but move in the direction of love and compassion and mercy and so forth. The flesh is used by the Apostle Paul as a figure of speech. The old way versus the new way. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, look at what is here. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we also had our life in times past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. He's talking about the fleshly way of life, and it's influenced by Satan. It is influenced by the world. And when we were following that, we were children of God's wrath. But God, rather than bring forth justice, he brought forth mercy because of his great love. And then he says, even when we were dead in sins, he had quickened us and made us uh, sit together with Christ. By grace are you saved, and on and on. And, and, and as you keep on reading then, he goes on and talks about how that we are Christ's workmanship unto good works and salvation and so forth. So the flesh is the old habits and attitudes and speech and ethics and morals. It's you. You were. Think about yourself. What are your personality traits? Everyone's a little different. We're not all the same. Think about your children. Just, just John, think about your five daughters. Nate, think about your two plus one. Yours is just a little bit young yet, but personality traits will start coming forth. Pauline, think about your two. Think about, think about your children. Are they all the same? No. They're all a little bit different. Certain things about them that make them different than their others. Here are some personality traits. Sometimes people are judgmental. I mean, they're quick to make judgment on things rather than get all the facts and make sure they're quick to be judgmental and make some statement. You know, it's like I saw a paper on the kitchen table the other day, and it said something about, well, my wife had put some toilet cleaner in the toilet, and she just assumed that because it was flushed, it never got brushed. It got brushed before it got flushed. And, but just to make sure she was happy, we did it again, and somebody else did it again. So we had a very sterile stool. But the point is, rather than write out the letter and say, thanks a lot for flushing down my cleaner, there's a place where you want to say, did you, did it, did you guys brush that before you flushed that? Huh? No, the flesh wants to just assume that it never got brushed. And knowing that's the flesh, knowing if you have a personality that tends to lean that way, if you listen to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit might say, you might want to check out and see if something got done before you go writing down some backstabbing comment on a <laughs> piece of paper. 
Some people are talkative. You know, there's some people are real quiet. And other people, you just can't button them up. It's just... Talk, 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 talk all the time. You say, well, what's wrong with being talkative all the time? The Bible says in the multitude of talk, sin is unavoidable. The more you talk, the more you're likely to say something that you're going to regret. It's going to offend somebody. It's going to upset somebody. And so there's a place whereby the Bible says that uh, the wise man is quick to listen and slow to speak. There's a place whereby you just don't talk as much. You stop and think about what you're saying. Some people are quick-tempered. I mean, some people, it just doesn't take much. And kapow, they're right there to put up the dukes and stand up for their rights and get angry and upset and yell and holler. Some people are quick with their profanity coming out of their mouth. They don't even stop and think about what they're saying. They just shoot it off. I know I've been around people to whereby it just seems like that is their that's their nature to just bring forth the the spewing filth, I mean, they just may be talking, you know, I may be at work and some guy will come up and he'll talk about a fishing trip on Lake Erie. But when you get done listening to him, you want to say, wow, man, I've never heard such a vulgar mouth. Because it isn't just a boat and fish. It's a blankety-blank boat. It's a blankety-blank fish. It's a, you know what I'm saying? they got to add all this stuff to it. To whereby you, you you walk away and you shake your head and somebody will say, that's just the way they speak. That's them. Okay? You say, well, why are they? Well, again, that can be a number of different reasons. That's not the point. The point is that if you're a Christian and you're, you came out of that and you spoke that way for 20 years and you became a Christian, now the flesh, the old habits and attitudes and speech and so forth, wants to spew out once in a while. And the only way that you can get that under control and use your tongue to glorify God is to put that old man to death. Put that old habit, that old attitude, put it on the cross. That's what we'll talk about in a minute. It can be an undisciplined life, undisciplined finances, undisciplined health, undisciplined time. People are lazy. People have sex problems. I mean, these are things, for example, that get developed over a period of years, and then when they get born again, they have to somehow be disciplined. They somehow have to learn a new method, a new way. And that's just exactly what the Bible is talking about in regard to discipleship. Oh, come on, don't do that to me. There we go. You might be a complainer. I mean, as an individual, your personality... He's always pessimistic. All he did was complain. Complain about, you know, <laughs> oh, I don't want to start. People think I'm picking on him. My wife's not a complainer. I was thinking of somebody else. But complain. People are pessimistic. They can never look at something with optimism. They always look at something with pessimism. Sometimes people are filled with self-pity. I mean, they're always just whining and complaining. Poor me. You know, I, I, I'm i just going to watch what I say. Unforgiving. People are always demanding of their rights. Sometimes people are, are not communicators. That causes problems. They just, they're just afraid to say something to somebody. 
They don't sit down and talk to somebody. You know, there's a place to whereby if there's something wrong, you sit down and you say, hey, can we talk about something? And you open up and you talk about it and you get into a discussion on it and you work those things, you work out those problems and resolve them. You become a communicator. Some people are introverts, greedy, argumentative, easily discouraged. Some people have a drinking problem. They're arrogant. They're loud. They're self-vaunting. They're backstabbing. They're irresponsible. They're not leaders. They have a low self-image. They're fearful. They're hedonistic, worldly-minded. That's the flesh. And I just scratched the surface. It is all those things that were in you before you became a Christian that are still prevalent in your life that God doesn't want, God doesn't like. The old habits, the old attitudes, it's the old way of life. It's not a human nature. It's just you've got a new nature, but at the same time you have to grow and you have to mature and you have to crucify those old habits and ways. We're to put them to death. Look at Romans 6 and verse 1. How do you deal with it? You put them to death. It's the message of the cross. In Romans 6, 1, Paul has just concluded on, in Romans 5 about how that all men are sinful and where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And he raises that question in verse 1. He says, well, what shall we say then? You know, if God is glorified by being long-suffering and merciful and patient and kind and loving, and in his grace he's forgiven us of our sins. Should we just keep on sinning so he can keep on forgiving so that he is glorified for being such a loving God? He addresses that question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We're dead to sin. We're dead to the flesh. We're dead to that old way of life. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in a newness of life. For if when we were planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. We have an old man. I have an old man, but my old man's in a watery grave up in Bowling Green. Buried him several years ago in a baptismal ceremony. There was another minister. I went to him. I said, I want to be baptized. We walked out into the, into the pond of the University of Bowling Green. And there I buried the old Mike Green. He isn't in here anymore. He's in there. We buried him. Some of you were baptized. Where was your old man buried? I mean, God doesn't want you to go back, build a tombstone, put flowers around it. He just wants you to bury the old man. It's gone. And when that old man starts to come up out of that grave, he wants you to go over and keep it down under. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. He that is dead is freed from sin. And if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. He's telling us that baptism is a figure of how that when you become born again, like as Christ was raised from the dead, 
you rise up to a new way of life and take that old way of life, put it into a watery grave, and this is a public testimony to the world. That's why baptism is not a private thing. It's public, and it's not a sprinkle thing. It's a burial. I mean, if somebody dies, you don't take them out to the cemetery and sprinkle a little bit of dirt on the body. Walk away. You dig a hole and you bury it. You bury the body. Well, we're supposed to bury this in a watery grave and say to the world, the old way of life of this person has now been put to death. It's buried. But since we can't do that, that is, go through baptism constantly, every day, you know, whereby something uh, goes wrong in your life and you're supposed to be getting on the cross. Oh, come on. Somebody want to hit my screen for me? Every week. Since we can't get baptized every day, I mean, you know, we may be called upon to get on the cross. Use the other keyboard, Nate. Hit the arrow. Yeah, hit escape. Now hit your down button. There you go. Thank you. No, you went the other way. Hit the down button. One more. There you go. Since we can't get baptized every day, God's given us something that's a little more, a little bit easier to work with to put the flesh to death. Okay? If you look at Luke 9.23, I'll tell you what it is. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. It's not a pond of water somewhere. It's not a baptismal device that's at church. I mean, don't laugh. Roman Catholics, you know, if they sin, they got to run to church to a confessional booth. Okay? And if... Don't put it past some people to whereby they're liable to come up with a baptismal tank and everybody, every time somebody, the flesh rises up, they're going to have to go run to that baptismal tank and get down, put, get put down in it again. No, we've got something easier to work with. It's called a cross. If you wear one around your neck, that's up to you. Just make sure you understand that when Jesus said, take up your cross, he wasn't telling us that he preferred a certain type of jewelry. He was talking about something that we were to use to put the flesh to death, the old way of life. Luke 9.23, it's discipleship. Discipleship is understanding that when Jesus married us, he took us as is. You know, I can remember different evangelists like Billy Grahams would say, would say, come as you are. He'll take you as you are. And he was exactly right. He'll take you as is. But he's taking you with the intent that he's going to change you. And if you don't want to be changed, if you like yourself the way you are, then don't go to him. Because he's not going to marry you the way you are. He's going to change you. You know, whenever I marry people, I always tell them, look, whatever that person is, that's what you get. If you don't like it now, tough. Don't marry them. If they're lazy, 
don't marry them. If they talk too much, don't marry them. If they have some bad habits, they're argumentative, they're quarrelsome, they're selfish, don't marry them. What you get, what you marry is what you get. Now, they may change if you use your faith and trust the Lord. I'm not saying that God can't change them, but you don't marry them with the intent that, well, I really don't like this guy, but I'm going to straighten him out after I get married because that doesn't work. You've heard the old story, you made your bed, now lie in it. The old phrase, what you marry is what you get. Okay, but when it comes to Christianity, it's not that way. Jesus took us as we are, but with the intent of changing us, and that prenuptial agreement, so to speak, is what discipleship is all about. He didn't marry us so that we could continue to live as a Christian sinner. He married us so that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. And the way that that gets accomplished is by the means of a cross. And He tells it to us over and over again. Luke 9.23 If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. That's the message. That we are to deny ourselves. We're to deny the flesh. We're tempted to get angry we deny ourselves the right to get angry. We are tempted to be lazy. We deny ourselves the temptation to be lazy. We're trying to get delivered of some habit like drinking. We deny ourselves that alcoholic beverage because we know it will just lead to an out-of-control situation in our life. We deny ourselves the uh, ability to talk as salty and Filthy and vulgar is the people that we're talking to. We deny ourselves that right. We clean it up. We learn to be loving. We learn to be patient. We learn to be kind. We learn to be meek. We learn to be long-suffering. We learn to be gentle. We learn to trust God. Use our faith. We learn to bear that fruit of the Spirit. The Scriptures emphasize that we have a cross and that we're to pick it up. Look at Matthew chapter 10 real quick so that we all understand there's a cross to bear. Matthew 10:38, He that not taketh not up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The cross was not an optional thing. When Jesus came, he said, I'll take you as you are. I will forgive you. I will wash you. I will cleanse you. There's one condition. You've got to take up your cross. And that cross is for the purpose of putting the flesh to death. I mean, not... Not like in some countries where they have an annual holiday to whereby you see somebody walk down through the streets and they'll carry some kind of a wooden cross and then they lay themselves down and they literally get nailed to it and they stand up there and they're crucified with Christ in a literal way. And people think that that's what it means to be crucified with Christ? No. What it means is that we deny ourselves the right to do what we want to do and we yield unto the will of God through the Holy Spirit as it's being revealed, revealed in our heart, and we do that on a daily basis. Jesus marries us as is, but with the intent to change us. Look at Romans 8.29. I'm not going to read all the other passages about the cross, Matthew 16.24 and Luke 14.27. But he marries us with the intent of conforming us Unto his image. This is Romans chapter 8. This is not something new. This was God's plan from the foundation of the world. 
I've heard people say, for example, that, well, you get saved and, uh, and discipleship is just something that's an option. It has nothing to do with salvation. You can be a Christian and not a disciple. That's not true. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. If you're a Christian, you have re- accepted the terms of picking up your cross. If you haven't accepted the terms of picking up your cross, he says, you're not worthy of me. You've heard a wrong message somewhere. You've heard something that's been a sugar-coated, greasy grace message that should never have been taught. Salvation is a second chance. It's an opportunity to be forgiven so that you can turn away from what lifestyle you used to live unto a new way of life. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have turned astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10 says, I beseech you as pilgrims and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Here's our calling from the foundation of the world to be conformed unto the image of His Son. That's our calling. How's it going to get done? It gets done by discipleship. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. I think I may have already read this, but real quickly, he says what? He's saying here that He has quickened us. He has made us alive. He's given us a new life, Ephesians 2, 1, wherein in the past... We had our life in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by children the nature we were by nature the children of wrath as even others. So if we live the kind of life now to whereby we just follow after the desires of the flesh, then we haven't done anything but just put on some kind of a religious garment. Our calling is to be like Christ, and Philippians two shows that that, that calling was one in which he gave himself over unto God. Nate, you may have to thank you, hon. Hit the down button. How do we do this? Well, let me just real quickly make a few comments and then I'm going to close. We do it by controlling the mind. We do it by controlling the body. Crucifixion involves controlling the mind and the body. If you look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, it's a choice. It's an attitude of the heart. We don't literally pick up a wooden cross, nail ourselves to it, and get on it. But we basically say what Paul said at the end of Galatians 6. He said, I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. It's a choice. It's an attitude. When you're tempted to to follow after the old way, when you're tempted, you resist that temptation and by a positive act of your will, choose to put that desire to death. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5 says, They which are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's a matter of the mind. If you put all of your attention and your mind upon worldly things, you'll be a worldly individual. But if you put your heart and mind upon 
the Holy Spirit and the, the things that He desires from us as a Christian, how to live, what fruit to bear, what's involved in that, and as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Basically, we're talking about two different lifestyles. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16 gives you a description of the old way of life, and he tells us that we're to put it to death. What is that old way of life? I know we've talked about it a lot. Look at what the scriptures say. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. How do we deal with the flesh? Walk in the Spirit. Here's what the flesh is. The two, he says, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. We said it's a warfare, it's a battle. So that they're contrary the one to the other. So you don't do the things that you should. But if you're led of the Spirit, then you're not under the law. You're, he says these are the works of the flesh. He mentions sexual uncleanness. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. These are all sexual sins. You know, I, I, it's just a warning. Listen to me. This world has gone through various different changes in sexual attitudes and appetites through the years. This country was formed. It was my wife and I went out to Boston. We were we were looking at where the pilgrims came in. We looked at the replica of the Mayflower and all of that. And the 1600s, the pilgrims came over to this country to free religious persecution. Yes, but there was a lot of sexual debauchery that was going on in Europe at that time as well. A lot of filthy uncleanness. And they came over here because they wanted to live a life that was clean and pure and free from that from those sexual appetites that were overcoming Europe. And of course it's we've gone through periods. You remember the Victorian period. Generally people remember remember it because of the beautiful homes that were built in the Victorian era. They'll talk about a home as being as a Victorian home. Huge and great big. And during that time, you know, women wore their their dresses up to the bottom of their chins and long sleeves and on and on. They did everything they could to try to be not appealing to the opposite sex. Did it work? No, of course not. I mean, there's been gadgets and devices and and clothing styles and everything else that have tried to to control things. And it controlled it to a better, to a certain degree. That was a lot purer area era era era, not E R A. It was a lot purer lifestyle than what you have today. I really believe that the Internet is going to cause a sexual revolution in this country and be a part of bringing it down because of the filth that can be found. I mean, I'm just thinking about my own life. I don't remember growing up in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And I went through the 60s, which was a sexual revolution to whereby you had all different kinds of things occurring because men and women would give their minds over to drugs and lose the control that God built into them. But there is a lot of sexual misconduct and filthiness that is rising up in this country. And the Internet and the freedom of pornography and everything else is a great part of it. And that's the flesh. You feed it and it will take over. 
So you just resist that temptation. You say no. Idolatry and witchcraft, these are things in regard to the occult. People get involved in various ways to seek out truths, they think, through occult books, crystal balls, tarot cards, astrology, the occult. He says this, he refers to this as idolatry and witchcraft, which idolatry is, is picture image. It's the worshiping of pictures. Witchcraft is magic, sorcery, and so forth. He talks about wrath, emulation, I'm sorry, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, and strife. Five different words there to deal with the temper, the attitudes. People, for example, will... You didn't, you didn't stay over there, Humbug. People will give themselves into hatred, variance, hostility, quarreling, heated arguments, strife, physical contact. We're talking about the flesh. Being hateful, mean-spirited, hostile, short-fused, quarreling. You know, the, the best way to solve an argument, somebody has to stop. Somebody has to say, I'm going to put the flesh to death. You say, yeah, but if I do that, then they're going to win the argument. And if they win the argument, then what happens to me? I, You know, there have been times in my life where I've thought about that, and the Holy Spirit has said to me, I'll take over. I will vindicate. I'll come to your defense. There's no weapon formed against you that will prosper, the Bible promises. I mean, he knows how to deal with people a whole lot better than you can with your tongue and your arguing and the quarreling. Only a fool will argue. The best thing to do is stop. Where no wood is, the fire goes out. If you're in the right, God will vindicate you. If you're not, God will spank you. But either way, you'll grow and mature through either the chastening or the vindication as he defends you accordingly. Sedition, heresies, choosing sides, gossip, lying, a divisive spirit. On and on and on, he says. He says these things are contrary one to another so that you can't do the things that you would. But what he, what he wants us to do is reckon that old personality, that old attitude, that old habit, that old way of life. Put it to death. Recognize it as dead and yield yourself over unto the Holy Spirit to whereby He can bring forth love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And there's no law against being those things. They that are Christ, verse 24, have crucified the flesh. See, there's crucifixion. You put the temptation to get angry to death. You put the temptation to gossip to death. You put the temptation to allow sexual uncleanness to dwell in your mind. You put it to death. I mean, it's a matter of controlling the heart and the mind. You can't think two thoughts at the same time. And so there's a place to whereby you stop and you think about those things Philippians talks about that are positive, that are good, that are edifying, that are clean, that are wholesome, that are pure. 
I mean, you're in an argument with somebody. And all you can do is focus upon how that you're right and they're wrong. And I want to keep arguing my point. I want to win this battle. I am not going to give in. And all you're doing is damage to yourself. Remember last week, we are light in this world. We're to be example centers of this world. You're not setting forth the right example by arguing. The best thing to do is to stop and quit arguing. And if you say, yes, but that person's not worth it. There's always something positive and kind and nice about the person you're arguing with. Every person in this room has good points and bad points. None of us are perfect. And we all have a choice. We can think about the good points of this person or we can think about the bad points. And if I think about their bad points, then all I'm going to do is continue to give myself justification to argue and quarrel and fight with them. But if I stop and I think, you know, this person has helped me out in a lot of ways. This person has been kind to me in a lot of ways. This person, there are positive things that you can think about with that person. And even if you can't, if you stop and think that the Scriptures say, this isn't right, this isn't your calling. I want you to be manifesting love, not the flesh. Get it under control. Rule the Spirit. Put that flesh to death. That is what God wants us to do. He wants us to be led by the Spirit and yield to Him and put the flesh to death. Now let's just bow our heads. Father in Heaven, We know that to walk in the Spirit and to crucify the flesh, it's easy to talk, but it's a lot more difficult to put it into practice. We know that we're tempted every day with thoughts in our mind. Thoughts to be critical. Thoughts to be angry. Thoughts to lust. Thoughts to be self-centered and selfish. Thoughts of self-pity. Thoughts of laziness. There are all different kinds of thoughts that the devil's bombarding our mind with. And you know that. You've told us to bring our minds under control and to make captive those things which will enable us to walk in the Spirit. So I just pray the Holy Spirit would use the Word this morning to remind us that we're to take the old way of life, the old man, the flesh, and when we're tempted, Get on that cross and put it to death. Determine our heart. We're going to listen to the Holy Spirit's inward nudging and yield unto Him and submit to what He wants and let you take over that situation from there. You've called us to be loving, patient, forgiving, peaceful, kind, trusting. We can't do that enough. But it's our responsibility to get on the cross and be conformed to the image of your Son. If we do that, then we become those lights in this dark world that we talked about last week. Bless the word to our hearts and keep us ever mindful of it, that we may glorify you by the way we live, talk, and act. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.